Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Welcome back to my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. It's uh, a big difference here from from down south in San Antonio, let me tell you. You had to come all the way back to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to figure out that uh, South Dakota and Texas have a bit of a difference of weather. Well, you know, sometimes you just don't want to believe these things. Well, let's believe what what the people have to say for feedback. How about that? Sure thing. Our first email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, Hello, Noah and Steve. I've been listening to the Ask Noah show for around five years now. I truly appreciate the very down-to-earth program that the Ask Noah show is. I listen from Japan and therefore almost always listen to the recorded podcast version. One day, I hope to be able to catch the show live and maybe even call in. After listening to the most recent episode, I felt compelled to email my thoughts regarding the whole podcasting 2.0 thing and the concept of funding podcasts using cryptocurrency via boosts and the like. I know other podcasters are all in on the whole podcasting 2.0 boost thing, and I can certainly see this the position that they're in as this is a business for them in which they're trying to make a living. All that being said, in the short time since I've had to make the transition, I felt like as a listener, something was lost. As someone who struggles regularly to just pay the bills and survive in this world where most of our disposable income leaves bank accounts to pay for literally everything we consume in life. I'm not in a position to convince my wife that I should be converting money to cryptocurrency and then sending it to podcasts. She doesn't understand the concept of paying for what she considers to be no different than a radio show and listens to on the radio. But more importantly, we're just burnt out financially. On top of the fact that compared to the days when we were children, we now pay recurring monthly subscriptions for everything. Even the software we use is becoming a subscription. Corporate America is looking to drain us until there's nothing left. So to sum it all up, I'm glad that there are shows like the Ask Noah show that are funded in the way that you've established yourself and such. I can I, I can write in or call into your show without having to first send a boost. For those other programs and the networks that are moving to that sort of funding model, I feel as if I've become a second-class citizen because of the fact that I simply can't get on board with the whole cryptocurrency boost thing. Thanks so much for all you and Steve do for the community. From the other side of the world, where it is cold, but nothing to the degree of what you're experiencing. Sincerely, the other Chris. So, Steve, your thoughts on Chris's email. So, I, I definitely resonated with this email. I mean, partly this was... More in line with how I, I've been feeling as well. I have, uh, it sounds like I have a little bit more of a, um, advantageous financial situation, thanks to the grace of God than, than this listener does. But, uh, I also have been feeling like, well, some of the stuff that I've listened to, I, I write in, but because people send dollar amounts attached to their messages, they get put to the front of the line. And there's reason for that. Right. I, I completely understand. I'm not I'm not bitter. And it doesn't sound like Chris is either. But at the same time, 
it does make you feel like you're only sort of part of the community, right? Definitely more on the outs than you were before. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely understand this. He doesn't, I didn't also feel like he thought this was a bad idea necessarily, right? He doesn't seem to uh, be reacting to the idea that paying for a podcast, for example, is a bad idea. It's just mm -hmm. like we're, we're tapped out and it's just another thing to yet throw on the pile. Yeah, I mean, this it's this it's a really is it's a complicated issue, and I, and I struggle even myself to wrap my head around exactly how how to take a solid take. But I, I guess I would ask: Does the funding mechanism matter insofar as our goal is to connect with people? Does the funding mechanism matter that much, or could it be in some cases it works just fine to have a business relationship with another organization that shares similar values? In other situations, it makes perfect sense to build that relationship directly with the listeners. I just I think that there are multiple ways to crack that nut. Our second email comes in from Jordan. Jordan says, "I feel like you two have entirely missed the purpose of podcasting 2.0. It's not just about the sats." It's about creating an RSS-based ecosystem around your podcast. And I'm sorry, Noah, but if you ran around with Google Glass on your head for years as an early adopter, then you should consider the same mentality about this wave of podcasting features. It's in no way about you. And for your show, it's not even about funding you. But by opening the door to all of the features of podcasting 2.0, it will ensure that you're ready for whatever comes beyond Spotify and Apple. As soon as you stop innovating, you'll go away. I've watched ads become more and more egregious, and I simply will not tune into those podcasts anymore. To take back to finances, you are not self-sufficient if I can't pay you directly. Simple as that. I'm finding it infuriating that I have to go through so much detail about how it only benefits you and all of your podcasts who get on board. I'm not asking you to compile Gentoo. It's free money we're talking about. Jordan. So first of all, I, I, I desperately appreciate the feedback, Jordan. Really appreciate the feedback, and I think it's a great point of view. Steve, do you have any thoughts? I think this was a difficult email for me to read personally, um, partly because I feel like as a society we've been we've been segregating ourselves into a very black and white version of whatever the present is. It's like if you don't a hundred percent agree with me, then there's something wrong with you, and you're not pulling for your team. Right? Like I I got a a, a tone of this where it felt like hey, you guys are part of the community. Uh, it doesn't matter if you need to do this personally, you should be doing this for the greater good of the of the podcasting ecosystem. And while there may be something to that, not every podcast has the same aim. Um, and when Noah decides to change the show and the, the direction of the show, you know, maybe that's something that we'll, we'll talk about and reevaluate. But right now, this is a philanthropic kind of work for both of us, as we've said before. And so taking in any kind of money is just beyond the point of what we're trying to do here. And so the the tone of the email is saying like, well, you're not supporting yourself and you're not helping the, the, the broader ecosystem. I think that's the antithesis of the show. Like we, we started this, you know, I, I will see this. Noah started the show and I got on board because I thought it was a really good idea to give back to the community. And so we're not giving back to the community in the way that this listener would like. And there seems to be some frustration there. And I don't really understand that. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I struggle with a couple of things in the email. I struggle with the idea that 
early adopter means that we adopt every piece of technology mm-hmm. that comes out. I don't know that it's that every piece of new innovation, not that it's bad, but I just don't know that it's always relevant to every situation. I struggle with the idea that I that the old, this is the only way to directly finance something. I struggle with the idea that the only way to finance a podcast is through direct funding. I think there's all sorts of things that I really struggle with. And that's not to say that I'm not sitting up on on some ivory tower saying I understand it all and I've got it all figured out. Not that at all. Don't hear that at all. Um, Just hear that I don't think it's as clear cut as it's it's a one size fit all. And if you don't get on board, you're a moron. Uh, Our third email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hi, guys. Love the show. You guys do a great job. Is it feasible to replace a typical home security system with Home Assistant? If so, could you recommend some hardware and software combinations to replace an alarm system? So, Steve, I know you have a really creative approach in the way that you do this, um, basically basing it off of data that you collect in your house. Talk about that. Yeah, so... There, there's a function inside of Home Assistant called a Bayesian sensor, which essentially uh, takes a bunch of different data points and you can weight them differently to say how likely it is to have an outcome. I've basically done a poor man's version of that. So I have motion sensors throughout the house because I want lights to go on and off. Uh, that also means that coincidentally, every door happens to have a motion sensor by it. And some of them have three or four because of the angles and stuff like that. So in my case, uh, I might I I set up things for example to give me an alert if several of the motion sensors go off in quick succession. That probably means somebody is moving through the house, and I probably should check that out. It's the same thing with I have door sensors on on the doors, and I've got window sensors um, so that I know if things are open or closed. That doesn't prevent somebody from throwing a brick through your window, of course. But um, in terms of using Home Assistant for that that sort of stuff. Essentially, you can use data points from the sensors in your house, like did the lights go on and off or are the motion sensors going off? Or, you know, I even have different um, different temperature sensors throughout the house that are sensitive enough, like if somebody walks past them or the door gets left open and there's a good breeze on them, they drop in temperature. So it's a bunch of those sorts of things that I kind of use as heuristics. And then I have Home Assistant send out so it sends a push notification and it also sends out over a Telegram chat that I have that my wife and I are in so that um, if one or the other happens to get blocked, you know, that it would take a, a person like Noah who actually was familiar with my house and then some severe acrobatics for him to get to my home assistant and rip it out of the Internet before uh, I got alerts that something was going on in my house. So the, the, the traditional go-to way of solving this problem, right? You mention, it, you know, can you replace a typical home security system? So typical home security system, when I hear that, I think of an alarm system. I think of the Honeywell Vista 20P, something along those lines, right? And this is what we've all seen in movies, and some of us even have had it installed in our houses before we got there. Walk through the front door, a little keypad on the wall, you type a thing, it arms, you walk out the door. A few seconds later, the system goes into armed mode. If the door is, if, if the door is breached or motion sensors are breached or glass, break or whatever it is, sensor is tripped, you have a certain amount of time to enter the correct PIN code. If you don't, it calls the police, please show up, they arrest the person, everyone's happy. So in that scenario, I would look at something like a Honeywell system. And, you know, I I mentioned the Vista 20P because it's been around for years and years and years, but there's obviously newer ones that Honeywell makes. All of them are good. If you're looking to go that direction, 
it's really kind of useless to have a siren blaring in your house with nobody to hear it. So you really need it to call out to something. And so what I recommend uh, to all of our clients at AltaSpeed is a service called Alarm Relay. Nine bucks a month, they will monitor any system for you. And the nice thing is they'll work with, they work with, if you have a system that was already installed in your house, they'll work with that. If you want to go purchase one and install it, they'll work with that. If you want to buy a system from them, they'll help you do that. Um, so they, they they work with a wide range of product. I've never had them tell a client, no, they won't do that. And the other thing I like is, unlike the traditional big name box things, you buy the system, it's tied to their monitoring service. In this case, you're just programming the system to send it to their call center. And it supports things like it'll go over the Internet. If the Internet's down, it'll dial over a hard line if you have it. If you don't have a hard line, you can put a GSM modem and it'll dial out over the cell phone. So it has all that fun stuff. So that's what I hear when I hear you say that the uh, a typical home security system. And if you want to do that, Honeywell Security System, AlarmRelay.com. I have links for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Another thing you might check out, it's a company called Connected. You can learn more at Connected, spelled with a K, K-O-N-N-E-C-T-E-D dot I-O. And Connected is was started by a guy who has a passion for open source. And essentially what they make is little alarm boards. So they make, you know, 6, 12, 18 and 24 zone alarm panels. And they're very inexpensive. They're like a hundred bucks, something like that. And it basically has little closed uh, terminals, exactly what you would expect to see on like a Vista 20P, those sorts of things. They make a number of different sensors that you can purchase from them. And they natively work inside of Home Assistant. And so you can buy, you know, like the, the battery backup for 39 bucks, or you can buy the, 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 the siren, which I actually think is made by Honeywell. In fact, I think a lot of their motion detectors and door contact switches are, are Honeywell switches. Um, but they just replaced the little board that you use with, um, with a, a more open source friendly one. I say open source friendly because I don't know that they necessarily publish, you know, the, the specifications or anything like that in the way of you can build it. Um, but they do support things like it being completely private and it being completely local on your network. So I, my personal house, I don't have, even though we recommend it to clients and they say, Hey, I want a call center and all the things, no problem. We'll set you up, but it's not the way I do things in my house. I don't ever want something leaving my house. And if somebody's going to break in, I want to know about it. Just send that alert to me. So this might be a way to do it in full disclosure. I've never used any of their products before. I've never set any of this up, so I don't know a whole lot about it. It's been something that's peripherally been on my radar and it, it's their, their products are built off of the ESP32 and ESP8266s. So I, I would invite you to check them out again. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com, or you can learn more at Connected. That's spelled with a K, K-O-N-N-E-C-T-E-D dot I-O. Our fourth email comes in from Brendan. Brendan writes in and says, G'day. I recently started a new role as a system administrator at a mid-sized company. Currently, we don't have any solution in place for network monitoring. So there's very little visibility into our network infrastructure. With my previous roles, we had used SolarWinds, which had been wonderful. However, current management is strongly against that product, so convincing them might not be worth the battle. We do have Cisco routers and switches. Our main headquarters swells Aruba access points. Our remote offices are Cisco uh, Meraki's with Aruba access points and switches. Do you have any suggestions for a tool that we can use to monitor this environment? Thanks for such a wonderful podcast. So a couple things. So first of all, I'm I'm almost positive that the Cisco uh, Meraki's have their own manager, um, whatever monitor cloud thing uh, built in. So you might look into that. To answer your question directly, if you just want monitoring, like you just want to know, hey, is this I want to interrogate my switches 
with SNMP and I want them to report back. If something goes offline, I want to know about it. That sort of stuff. Libra NMS is your is your guy all day long. Uh, easy, easy, easy to set up. You can direct the output into an element chat, and so it'll just send you a message says, hey, the switch is offline. The nice thing about it is you can have it connect over SNMP and interrogate the device, or you can just have it do a ping test, right? So oftentimes you'll get some super locked down proprietary garbage thing that you have to deal with on your network. And it comes in from a vendor or whatever. And they say, don't touch it. We just plug it in. Give us an IP address. Leave us alone. Got it, boss. No problem. I want to know when your stupid thing goes down. And so we just start an ICMP ping. And as long as it responds to ICMP requests, we can monitor. Is that working? If it ever fails, give me an alert. Let me know and I'll go take care of it. So just monitoring LibreNMS. Check that out. You can learn more at LibreNMS.org. Uh, again, have I'll have notes for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you want to take that to the next level, judging just kind of based on how you've laid out what you want, you use the word, there's very, vis- there's very little visibility into our network infrastructure. And I have to tell you, when I start thinking about what I look for when I'm looking for visibility into a network, I'm long past wanting to know if a switch is up or down or if an access point is up or down, that sort of thing, right? And clients are increasingly demanding that we start to get ahead of problems. What do I mean by that? I mean, they want us to be proactive and they want us to be fixing problems before they occur. And so for that, we use a technology called XDR or extended detection and response. And the idea of extended detection and response is you learn about what a network looks like and how the systems are supposed to function. And then we build rules around how the network and and systems are supposed to function. And when something becomes out of line, in what we expect it to function. So let's say, for example, uh, cryptoware gets loaded onto a machine and that cryptoware touches 5,000 files in 30 seconds. Well, no human being is going to go through and touch 5,000 files in 30 seconds. So now we can start to look at what thing is happening on the network and what do we do about it? And we can start to make some decisions, turning off switches, turning off machines, cutting network access, whatever it takes, and then firing up alerts to tell somebody, hey, something is wrong. And so... The platform that we use for XDR is something called Wazoo, W-U-Z-U-H. And what it does is it essentially sits there, and it's actually, it's really a software stack, but what it allows you to do is provides you real-time correlation and context. And so active responses become granular, and you can you can look at on-device remediation on the endpoint itself. And so there's a little agent that runs on all of the computers that's reporting in and saying, here's where I'm at, here's the software, here's the process I'm running, here's the user that's logged in, here's everything I'm doing. And all of that stuff gets reported to this single pane of glass. So you can log in and get an immediate look at, here's everything that's happening on my network, here's all of the endpoints, here's what everybody's doing, and here's the stuff that is sitting outside of my parameter, something that I want to be alerted to. And again, the problem with just monitoring, right, is it becomes overwhelming. You start, the larger the network grows, eventually you get to a point where, yeah, you've got alerts from the Windows 7 box that you were told has to stay there, and you've separated it out in its own VLAN, and it's not talking to the internet and all the things, but it's still there on your network, and you're still responsible for it, so you kind of start to ignore it now, right? And that's not really a great option, because one day, Jim... Uh, unplugs the Windows 7 box from its nice little segregated VLAN and carries it over to his office cubicle and plugs it in, and now you have a huge problem. So being able to kind of keep track of all that without having to have a human do it and then being able to take action based on that, hey, Jim moved that Windows 7 machine onto the wrong VLAN. Kill the port. Well, now Jim connected it to Wi-Fi. Kill the access point. Well, now Jim did. Just start killing stuff and sending alerts up until a human comes over there and rips that computer out of Jim's hands and puts it back where it belongs. 
that kind of a deal. So you can learn more at wazoo.com, W-A-Z-U-H.com. Uh, and we'll have links for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of February 12th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source headlines. Transmission 4.0 has been released. Firefox 110 is out. Parrot Security has quietly released version 5.2 on their download site. OpenSSL 3.0.8 has been released. The KDE team has announced the release of Plasma 5.27. The team at Endless has released Endless OS 5, which is based on Debian Bullseye and ships with GNOME 41 and Flatpak support. Endeavor OS has released their latest version and have named it Cassini Neo. System76 has announced that their all-new AMD-only Pangolin Linux laptop is now available for purchase. It features an AMD Ryzen 7 6800U processor with up to 32 gigs of RAM, up to 16 terabytes of storage, and includes an AMD Radeon 680M integrated GPU. The Mycroft AI creators have announced that they will not be able to fulfill the rewards for its Mark II Kickstarter campaign due to litigation costs from a now-dropped lawsuit from Voice Tech Corporation. The company CEO has stated that they will still be shipping all orders that were made through the Mycroft website because those sales directly covered the cost of producing and shipping the products. And there's a new pair of open source headphones available named Ploopy. The headphones are now available for pre-order and integrate a Raspberry Pi microcontroller-based DAC. The open source laptop called Balthazar that emerged in 2019 seems to be continuing its development after receiving funding from the European Commission's Next Generation Internet Initiative. It is a 13.3-inch laptop with a RISC-V ARM or FPGA module and is designed to be upgradable, expandable, and sustainable. And thanks to the recently released Fallout Community Edition, the original 1997 game is open source and is now playable on iOS and Android. Both Steve and I have talked about our experience on Endless OS. It's kind of revolutionized the way that both Steve and I are looking at how we introduce new users to technology, in part because Endless OS empowers the user and connects them with a bunch of utilities that exist right on their machine. Joining me to help understand Endless further is Matt Dalio, the founder of Endless. Matt, welcome in. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So I want to start here, Matt. I understand that Endless is really a network of different efforts, and they all kind of weave together in a cohesive way. Can you kind of talk about how Endless got started, what you guys aim uh, to accomplish, and how all of the different parts of the Endless network work together? The vision of Endless is one in which um, youth around the world, the entire world, have access to the digital skills uh, and digital tools to be participants in, in the modern world. Um, and it really comes down to two halves. One is, how do you upskill kids? How do you make sure that they have um, the skills that are necessary? And the way we think about that is lean into where they are, which is in, in video games, of course. The average kid spends 10,000 hours of playing video games by the time they graduate from school. So they're all virtuosos in video games. And if you can lean into that, uh, and in particular, teach them how to make those video games, well, if they can make a video game, they can make software. If they can make one kind of software, they can make lots of kinds of software. And so we're launching something called Endless Studios, which is um, a, a, a vast, um, kind of massively distributed youth game making studio where there's apprenticeship that guides youth from total novice to becoming a pro and the whole curve in between. Um, that idea was born out of the other half of what we do. 
which is uh, endless OS, endless access. Uh, and we really think about, you know, how is it that you can get that to every child in the world? These, these, these tools, these amazing tools that can change people's lives and computer uh, in particular. Smartphones are wonderful, but computers are where real work happens. And so the roots of Endless uh, were born in the other half of this mission, which is making it so that every person in the world could have that. Um, and there are um, two main pieces that I'm happy to go into in as much detail as, as, as you like. Well, I'm sure we'll, get, we'll get, get into the meat of it, but it, it's device access. How do I afford a device? Uh, and it's internet access. If I live in a place that doesn't have either affordable or quality or any internet access, how do I still get access to what uh, I need in order to, to do what I need to do? Um, and that's really uh, what the endless access side of the house does. Collectively, those two things, the vision is a world where every kid has access to the tools to go live an empowered uh, digital life. Why does Endless need to exist? Obviously, it's built on top of Linux, and there are plenty of Linux distributions out there, many of which have been targeted towards newbies. What makes Endless different, and why did you say, you know what, there is something unique and new that we could bring into the open source Linux ecosystem that will serve people in a way that right now other products aren't doing? Yeah, so Endless OS began with um, <clears throat> the concept of, of back in the day when there, there, um, there were basically ARM processors and there was no Linux desktop distro running on top of it. The thesis that we began with was how do you make this affordable to everyone? Like basically, let's go make a Raspberry Pi, a real computer. Um, and, and so that's where we began. In the process of doing that, we spent a ton of time in the field. I think like five of our first six hires were dedicated to going in the field, doing user research, designing things, iterating, getting the feedback, prototyping. Like it was all about user-centered design. Um, at the time, I was at Stanford Business School and Stanford uh, Business School right next to it is the D School, which is all about human-centered design and getting in the field. And what we found was um, just, you know, really quickly, if you put, uh, you know, even Windows in front of a totally new user, they'd have no idea what they were doing. The same was true for Mac and the same was true for Linux. Um, but if you put an iPad in front of them or an iPhone in front of them, they immediately knew what they were doing, just like a two-year-old knows what they're doing. I have a two-year-old at home. I give him our phone. And, you know, he's bouncing around, knows exactly what to do. So the the question um, of how you make a, a computer operating system as simple as uh, a smartphone operating system was something that we grappled with for a very long time. And when I say grappled with, I don't mean like it thought, we, we, we thought, and then we designed, and then we put it in front of people, and then we saw what worked and what didn't work, and then we iterated. Um, and the result of that was something that you can put a first-time user in front of anyone basically anywhere in the world, and they know how to use it. And the core of it is that it's just like a smartphone. It's, it's basically a grid of apps on your desktop. And you're like, I want to play games. Well, great. Let me go click on the games button. Um, and <clears throat> so using that home screen, um, as well as a number of other smaller changes that we made, um, made us realize that, that, that you needed the design interface to be something that was tailored to these first-time users. Now, in the process of doing that, we also discovered that um, there were a lot of other um, changes that we had to make that were more systemic to address those underlying issues in particular of how do I make a device affordable and how do I make a device useful on any internet connection? Um, and so I'm happy to, to jump into those two things if you like. Please. Uh, but, oh, perfect, I love talking about them. So so device access, um, let's tackle that, that, that issue. So, 
um, I'll tell kind of a, 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 a little story. I mean, it, it, it's about eight years of my, or five years of my life. So I'll, I'll summarize it quickly as saying, we spent five years trying to build really cheap hardware and make our software run on really cheap ARM processors. And then we <laughs> built our own hardware because no one else would ship it. Um, and then we had these really cheap production, beautiful Wall Street Journal called it the, you know, I think computers are now dirt cheap, focused on emerging markets, um, little devices that could plug into TVs. And so really cheap computers. And what we found was that um, by the time you took the channel margin, they were about, they were like $79 if you were to buy it in the U.S. But by the time you actually sold it in emerging markets, ironically, they're more expensive because of the channels. And so they're $120 and we needed financing. Um, so we made financing available through bank partners. Um, and then we made financing available also for laptops because we figured, well, some people might want to buy laptops. And it turns out that the same people who couldn't buy this really, really cheap computer could now not only afford the cheap computer with financing, but they could afford not only the low-level laptop, but the high-end laptop that we were selling. Because all of a sudden, when you space payments out over a couple of years, it's really affordable, the monthly payment. So think of it as like a mortgage, right? You know, a mm -hmm. house is really expensive, but it's really affordable if you have a mortgage. The challenge that we found, um, the challenge that we found was that uh, it, it, banks were rejecting literally 80% of the applicants. So we would go into these communities, let's say in Guatemala, and we would present, we would present at times to like thousands of people, you know, usually as hundreds, sometimes it was thousands, but the conversion rate was basically always between 30 to 50% of people signing up, wanting to buy this. Within one hour, they're saying, I want to buy something that would normally cost them a month's worth of their salary. Because they knew they wanted a computer. They knew that they wanted the educational resources inside. They knew what it would mean for their kids. But they couldn't afford it until they got the financing and the bank was rejecting 80% of them just because they literally didn't have the paperwork to get the approval. So what we found was um, that um, there was a the question then is how do you make financing easily accessible? That becomes the hardest thing for solving device access. How do you make the it easily accessible. And it turns out that in Africa, the solar panel industry solved the exact same thing in the exact same in, in, or in the following way, which is by doing top up payments the same way that your phones work, which is that when you pay, it works. If you don't pay, it doesn't work. And so as a result of that, people end up paying and the bank knows that people will pay. So payment rates go through the roof. So we applied that same exact thing to computers. And it turns out that you end up with the same result, which is now you can much more liberally accept basically anybody who wants to sign up for it. So that's the device access side. Okay. Um, I can pause there if you've got any thoughts on that, any questions on that, or I can dive into the internet access side of things. But Yeah, no, I would love to. You know, the internet access side is particularly interesting because I think it opens up. Well, I mean, the device does too, to a degree, but internet Bringing the content to the device, I think, opens up resources to people that didn't have them before. So, yeah, please tell me about that. Yeah. And the other thing the Internet access um, thing does is, is we talk about first time users often as like a users in emerging markets are buying their first computer. But mm -hmm. the other kind of first time user is someone who's new to the Internet entirely as a child who's getting their first computer. Uh, and the thing that we discovered in the Internet side is that it also solves a big issue that parents have with their kids, which is the Internet's scary. I don't want my kids to have access to the Internet. Mm. So how do I have something that's useful without having to give them access to the whole thing, the whole Internet? So 
Um, so this is actually something that's as relevant for, for you know for, for parents buying their first kids' computers as it is for for, for parents in emerging markets where they can't afford internet. The, the the solution we discovered along the way turns out is really simple. Uh, the solution we discovered when someone um, in Guatemala also uh, we've done stuff in you know basically the whole world, but you know Guatemala was kind of our deep test market. Um, gave me a CD and said, "Put this inside." And I asked, well, what's the CD? And his answer was, it's Wikipedia. I said, Wikipedia? You mean Wikipedia fits on, on a CD? And his answer was, yeah, it does. And that just blew my mind. And a few months later, we were at uh, Maker's Fair in, in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And we went to the Wikipedia stand and there was a book that was like a 300-page tome all on uh, 3D modeling and animation everything you needed to know about it, all made up of Wikipedia articles. And I looked in and realized, holy cow, like you could have an app. If you just put Wikipedia inside and then you have an app full of, you know, just dedicated to, let's call it 3D modeling and 3D rendering and animation, mm-hmm. you can have an entire app. Dedicated. It's a book. If you think about how many books are inside of Wikipedia, just latent waiting there. And so... If you fast forward that idea many years of just kind of evolving our understanding of it as well as the software solution to deliver it, turns out there's lots of content that you can deliver in this kind of app form. You can deliver it asynchronously so that lots of stuff's in your computer, but when you connect to the internet, it downloads. Um, and it turns out that when you really look at how cheap storage is today and how vast storage is, that, that it's a lot cheaper than bandwidth. Yeah. So for example... A, a one hundred. This, this statistic still blows my mind. A one hundred dollar hard drive fits millions of web pages. Now, if I tally up every web page I've ever been to in my entire life, it does not add up to millions of web pages. So, another way of saying that is that every website I've ever been on in my entire life can fit in a hard drive. And so, the notion of using storage where bandwidth is expensive is a really simple concept, but a really powerful concept. And when you think of the kid who lives beyond the reach of internet access, who doesn't, which is still almost half the planet, there's billions of people, is a life-changing concept. Yeah, that's that's just, that that is something. Um, what do you think is the target market for Endless OS? So you've mentioned emerging markets a couple of times, and obviously I think it fits there like a glove, right? If you're in Africa, just being able to have access to information, you can prevent disease, you can provide different choices on, you know, ability to care for one's health. All of these things come by just unlocking information. The thing that I love about information, Matt, is it's the one thing nobody can take away from you, right? Once you've learned something, once you understand how an infection spreads or how to heal up, you know, a particular wound or something like that, those kinds of things, they're they they change systemically uh, the rest of a society. So it can be a really, really powerful tool. So I understand how it works there. Are there any other target markets for Endless West where you say, hey, this is a this is a, a community or a market or a segment of the population that I think Endless just fits really well for? Yeah, we. I think there are three. The, the, the first, and, and they all kind of boil down to the same thing, which is, um, you know, it, how do you teach digital skills to 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 to, to, to new users? Um, the first of that is where we where we're from, our roots, which is emerging markets. Um, but what we realized along the way was that that kind of branches out into into three. The first, still being emerging markets. The second, 
being a first-time computer user, I've got a kid, I'm scared of the internet, like my, my, I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old, and when they get you know, to the age where now it's time to get the, them a computer, it 100% will be an endless computer. Why? Because it's safe. Because yeah. everything that is good for them inside and everything that's bad for them is outside. And when they want to connect to the internet, no problem. It's got a browser. I can turn it on under my watch. I can feel safe about it, but I don't have to be there looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're safe. And we hear that from so many parents of an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old. At some point, you give them access to the open internet, no problem. But in those in-between years, they need, to, they need the technology, but they don't necessarily need everything that's accessible by Google. Um, and then the third is... Um, we really care about digitally upskilling. In other words, teaching the 21st century skills like coding, like digital art, like project management, like design, like all the, you know, what it takes to take a product to market. All of that is really important for this next generation to be prepared because schools are not teaching them. Most schools are not teaching these skills. You know, for example, AI, ChatGPT is about to be a really important in, like, tool in every industry that you enter. And yet schools are banning it understandably. But how do you prepare? That's the, that's the gap between schools and it's an example of the gap between schools and what's necessary to make you build towards tests and the real world and what it takes to prepare you for a job. And so Endless, as I mentioned, um, the other half of the house is all about preparing kids for the real world with real jobs. And a lot of those tools are built into to, to Endless OS uh, like we have something called Hack, which guides kids kind of into the operating system to learn how to hack their operating system, where they get to do all sorts of cool things to customize the OS and customize games inside of it. We are going to be building all of Endless Studios into Endless OS so that there's, you know, you've got Unity pre-built. You don't have to figure out how to download it and get it all installed. Like it's just there with all the modules that you need to scaffold you into making real games. So all of that lives in one safe environment where I can say whether I'm a parent you know, of a, of a child here in the United States or there, wherever it may be around the world, this is a safe computer. It's an easy computer. It feels like a modern computer that you know feels like the most cutting edge design that you know really feels like it's leaning into the future. And it is teaching the skills so that my kids actually can lean into the future. I'd like to dig into that a little bit further, if I may. So the, the, this, the tutorial system is, it just blew my mind, Matt. So I, I sat down and I thought, at first I thought, you know, there's like the welcome tutorial on a, on a computer or on a smartphone or something like that. And I thought, oh, that'll be kind of cute. And so I, I clicked through it and 30 seconds later, I'm like, wait, a blender. I, I don't, I don't know how to use blender, how to use blender. And 40 minutes later, I had an idea of how to use blender. And it's like, it walks you through in such an interactive way. And if I can kind of come full circle, it's what you started by saying, kids are naturally, they're inclined to go do games, right? So my kids are in school and I forget the name of the, the site, but there's a math site that they go to um, that their teachers have introduced them to. And it creates math problems but in a competitive game style way and they sit at home for two three hours on their own time and play this because it's a game and you've kind of taken that concept and for lack of a better way to phrase this capitalized on it to to engage kids but now you are opening them up to new skill sets can you talk about some of the other tutorials that are available and some of the walkthroughs that are available learning how to as you put it hack the operating system and learn about the technology that they're using 
Yeah, <clears throat> kids learn differently than than adults. Adults, I, I, the language um, learning process, I think, is is an interesting one, especially as I see my 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 two kids learn language for the first time. Adults want to, you know, sit down and understand. Okay, how does the grammar work? How does conjugation work? What what you know? This give me a you know flashcards the, with the vocabulary that I can match. So, adults want structure generally. Um, Kids don't need structure. The way the human brain works, seeing, again, my child learn, is that you just immerse them in it, and they're curious, and they poke around, and they try, and they see what breaks, and they see what doesn't, you know, what works. And the same thing is true, like this notion of like trying and immersing and playing, you see in sandcastles, you see in Legos, you see in Minecraft, and you see it in coding. And so two, two examples that led us to games um, uh, uh, as, as a tool the first was um, in emerging markets. We, we took Tux Math, which is, um, you know, I don't know, 1999 game or something like that. Numbers fall from the sky. It's basically, basically Math Blaster. In other words, it's not a particularly special game. But we would put it in front of kids in emerging markets, and we would have entire classrooms full of kids shouting numbers because they were so excited by the ability to play a game. <laughs> like, what would you rather have, like, flashcards and multiplication tables or a game that allows you to do the same thing? And, you know, at some point, I'm happy to dive into how I think about education games, but I think that education games need to be brought way forward into the future because they're still stuck in Math Blaster era. But there's a way to make games incredibly engaging. Um, and, and getting, in particular, kids to be building games is, is, we believe, you know, the easiest and most powerful way. The second big insight, the second big aha moment, was that we realized that um, the vast majority of our engineers, and, and for reference, the hardest uh, class you can take at uh, Stanford CS is the operating systems class. Uh, engineering and operating system is not an easy thing. So we have some of the best Linux engineers you know, in the world. The head of the Endless OS Foundation is the head of the GNOME Foundation. You know, like the, the, our, we're, our worlds are very, very close. And we're very lucky to have that team. Like, thank God for them, because without that, holy cow, this would not exist. And I asked, I was curious how they learned. And it turns out that the answer from almost all of them was, as a kid, I loved playing games. And then I discovered I could hack my games. And then I was hooked. And so the way we think about everything we do is we're going to help you hack your stuff. We're going to introduce you in a light touch way to the things that can allow you to tinker and make the way you want to tinker and make. You don't need courses. Those materials will be there if you want them. But, you know, to use one example that I love, we, we, we have, again, this whole scaffolded game engine pathway to teach kids and, you know, it, all the way up into Unity. Uh, Unity, by the way, to answer your question really directly, that's where we're investing most of our effort is how do you scaffold kids into using a game, a game engine and building everything around it. And we've built all these modules inside of it that make it so the kids don't need to know how to script in order to code. Why? Because now all of a sudden they're making games. They're excited. Why would we do that if our goal is to make them, you know, learn how to code? The answer is because as soon as they all of a sudden they're building all these games and they realize, like, I want to make my character double jump. And I can't do that by default. So I need to go into the script, the jumping script, and now I need to learn how to make them double jump. All of a sudden that kid is asking us to teach him how to script. The same kid that day one would not have wanted to touch scripting. So we think about it as like the biggest challenge is get kids engaged and enthusiastic and then channel that enthusiasm into learning these skills. And we think about everything we do in that way. 
I love the idea of meeting people where they are. You're you're saying here's what we know is true about kids. They have this kind of random abstract brain where they go in and they just kind of explore outwards. And so you're meeting kids there and then building tools around that. I think that's fantastic. What kind of response did you initially get when you released Endless OS? Was it was it what you expected? Was it more than you were expected? Were you kind of surprised by the feedback? We, um, you know, consistent with the human-centered design philosophy, um, which advocates like putting paper prototypes in front of people before you build a thing, we, our first version of Endless OS was a PDF of our design uh, and a bunch of cutouts where you'd say, if I click on this icon, what's going to happen? And we would give them options like that. That was the first version of Endless OS. And then we had a version of Endless OS that was so terrible that um, we, you, you literally it didn't have a shutdown button. And so you had to unplug your desktop computer because emerging markets, they have lots of desktops. You had to unplug your desktop computer to shut it down. And we deployed that on thousands of very, very kind and gentle souls who were like, yes, I believe in this mission. I will let you do that. And the result was that we've, you know, it, it wasn't about being surprised that usually when people build software, they build some big project and bring product and they spend years building it and then they ship it and they hold their breath and they wait. And, you know, that's just, you know, that's not the way the best products are usually built. So often the best products are built very closely with users, very iteratively. This is the like kind of lean startup methodology, which, you know, took Silicon Valley by storm, you know, like that, that book, our, our philosophy was very much steeped in that, in that tradition, uh, which is um, we won't be surprised because we're going to be so close to our users. So, you know, at every step of the way. What led you to creating the Endless Foundation? Tell me a little bit about that. So um, <clears throat> we, our, our belief in the mission and our struggles in monetizing it, at least in the ways that we were. So we were a, a company um, and we believed that this thing was going to go to the moon because we saw the users' reactions on the ground and we put it in front of sales groups and we'd sell to, you know, again, you know, half the people, 30 to 50% of people would, would buy it on the spot. Um, and so, um, we, um, we had a company and what we realized was that the quick, you know, to bring through a, a big journey very quickly, but basically the financing was the barrier for people being, to be able to buy these because the banks were rejecting everybody. And we realized that we had to build this pay as you go financing mechanism. And that took us a long, that took us a, a while to build in years to build. And we couldn't afford to float the company for those years while we built that thing that would allow us to scale. Um, the mission is too important. Um, and so we are very lucky to be in a position where we were able to say, okay, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to save it really. Um, and we're going to save it as a nonprofit. And so we're going to take the operating system and move it into, um, a, a, you know, into a nonprofit, a vessel that, you know, where it can effectively live forever. Um, and then, you know, separately, we'll, we'll probably be starting soon a little spin-out company that can go back to really cranking that sales engine. Now that the pay-as-you-go is in place, we've tested it, we've validated it. Uh, we're actually in the middle of hiring somebody to take that um, team and, and build a spin-out company. So kind of going off that a little bit, can you tell me a little bit about the Endless Laptop? Yeah, so the Endless Laptop is is exactly that. The idea is you know, how do I afford a laptop that I can't afford uh, to pay for cash up front? The answer, again, like our cars, like our homes is financing. Um, and for this market, you know, you know, mind you, we're not targeting the bottom of the pyramid. 
we're targeting kind of the middle of the bell curve because it actually the world income distribution is a bell curve. Most people are in the middle, and that's the that's where we're targeting the next billion consumers that don't have computers. Um, and you know, but but mind you, when you go to this market, they often you know won't buy a shampoo bottle because they can buy it in little you know packets, shampoo packets that allow them to space their payments out over time. It's basically, another way of solving financing. Um, and so, the endless laptop program. Uh, while the endless laptop is, um, you know, you can download endless OS onto your laptop, um, any laptop anywhere. Um, the um, the core of what we call the endless laptop program really is around this financing availability. Um, and so um, we're in the middle of rolling that out and we have high hopes for it. Um, it's still kind of a, a budding program. But as I said, we're about to hire a new leader for it, given uh, the promising results we've seen. So it's, it's scratching an itch. That's, I mean, that's how a lot of this stuff came to be. You needed it. And so then you went about the process of building it or creating it. Is there an option for individuals to buy the endless laptop outright so that they can be given as gifts to families in need? Let's say somebody says, I have a little bit of extra money. I would like to facilitate what endless is doing and, and just kind of whole hog donate it. Is that a possibility? Um, we, we, the donation model, um, we, we just don't think is scalable enough. What we look at is we say, you know, there, there are you know, billions of people who don't have computers. <laughs> you know, there are hundreds of millions of, of, of those who are kids who could and should. And the best way to get it to them is, the, you know, like smartphones were cheap enough, affordable enough. And now there are 2.8 billion Android phones in the world. That's not even including Apple. You know, so it, it, like the, the way that you get to those sorts of numbers is by building an engine that's um, economically viable where they can go buy it. Um, and everybody in the whole way up and down the value chain is able to make money off of it and then therefore is incentivized to be selling these things everywhere. Um, so we really look at the, the kind of the long term. How do you build the, the system to be um, scalable at that level? What is the endless key? So the endless key is um, us taking all of that content that we talked about before, kind of asynchronous. In other words, the notion that when you consume the content and when you download the content, those two things don't have to happen at the same time. That that concept um, we've taken out of endless OS. Uh, One of the nice things about being uh, a foundation is that it freed us to look at this and say, well, how do you get this on what used to be our competitors? How do you get this on Windows? How do you get this on a Mac or a Chromebook? Mm. And so, or on Android phone. And so um, the endless key is our initiative where we have done exactly that, make it as cross-platform as we possibly can, um, make it available to anyone, anywhere, no matter what platform they're running on. Um, And so we kind of, it started as a USB key, hence the name, but we kept the name, even though it's now available uh, to to download as an app because it's kind of, you know, this, the key to, to your universe, this key to a distant door and distant portal that will unlock all sorts of worlds. So we, we love that metaphor and um, that's the key. So how does that work exactly? Is it like a live boot USB driver? You said it runs on, on windows or you're trying to target that. What is the technical side of that? It, it, I mean, it's a, effectively, you know, a, a, a database with lots of content and a pretty front end that makes it really easy to navigate that content. So it, it's not um, an endless OS instance. It's not the operating system. Um, it, it used to be, and, and we have the ability to include that uh, in, in the USB key, you know, when, when and where necessary. But uh, the core of it is, you know, it's really just, it's an app. It's got lots of content inside of it. 
we have very um, these great partners. There's a product called Calibri, which is um, uh, you know they're basically side by side with us, um, and we've built on top of um, their system, uh, Calibri with a K, uh, where they've been focused on same same as us, emerging markets, uh, users, and how you get kind of offline content uh, in those environments. They're focused a little bit more on kind of learning management system um, environments. We're focused more on at home consumers, but um, you know, we use their software to power. Um, kind of uh, just a you know really exploratory, fun, interesting environment where our goal is to spark curiosity and provide the information you need for your homework when you want that as well. If you had a couple of moments with in front of a decision maker for an educational institute like an elementary school, how would you describe Endless to them as compared to, let's say, a Chromebook? And what are the advantages over a, a, a cloud-based platform device like like something like a Chromebook? Yeah, it's funny. We grapple often with the challenge of Chromebooks, and I think there are you know, two problems. One is just the amount of storage that's available, and the second is the ability to run native apps, um, and they're very related. The fact that a Chromebook is basically just a browser, there's a lot of amazing stuff in, in the Internet, of course. And obviously, if you don't have Internet at home, which in, in this country, uh, when COVID hit, they discovered that 15 million American kids either didn't have internet at home and or uh, um, a, a device at home. And so internet's a real issue, you know, as you were describing to me earlier, like just even your, your own, you know, your, your own backyard, basically, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people in rural communities that don't have internet. So Chromebooks don't work there. But the deeper issue, I, I think, is that the real tools of creation um, are not always in the web. So, for example, let's say you want to be um, you believe in this thesis that building games is a great way of engaging youth to build software, to learn how to build software, to get them excited about coding and design and project management and all these things that are so important to the future. Well, Unity doesn't run in a browser. You, you need to be able to install a real instance of Unity on your device. The same thing is true. We, we, we build um, educational games, and the idea is that this game studio that we're building also then will in the future. We haven't gotten there yet, but we'll build lots of education games. Those education games need to run on your device. So, for example, we, we also have a, a little kind of game engine built on Unity. It's like Minecraft with game mechanics uh, that that Endless Studios team has built. That is a downloadable install. And so if you, you know, believe in the value of, um, of, of, of software like that, you, you need to download it. And that's the case for if, you, you know, a, a piles of the all basically all working software, right? I mean, in other words, all work like real horsepower software. If you want to enter animation, you need Blender. If you want to, um, you know, enter, I don't know, you, you go into the deep end of mathematics, you need MATLAB. Like uh, these, these pieces of software are native applications that require um, the, the, the capabilities of native operating systems. And so, um, so often there, yeah, Chromebooks just uh, limit kids and, and um, administrators and the kids don't even realize it because they're just living in a, a little world that feels so big, but they don't realize that um, there are actually huge chunks of it that are cut off to them. Somebody is listening to this, Matt, and they're thinking to themselves, I want to contribute. I want to help this effort. This sounds so cool of, of what these guys are doing. How can people get involved? How can they support Endless? What needs do you guys have? Thank you. I, I, honestly, what you are doing right now is the single biggest challenge um, that we need help with, which is spreading the word, marketing, telling our story. 
uh, again, we've got a decade of work that has gone into this. Collectively, hundreds of people have poured their lives into the results that you see. And it's really strong. It's really powerful. And nobody knows about it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why on the one hand. On the other hand, I just know we're not good at marketing. And that's like now becoming this year. My number one most important thing is like spread the gospel. You know, I, I don't know. I might even ship a book about it one day, right? Like, like, like that's how serious I am about spreading the word on all of this. And yet um, it's, it's something that we, we need help with. And, and that's the sort of, you know, if I have any ask amongst, you know, any broad group of people, it is literally just like, tell people about this, tell people about this, spread the word. And if, if I could ask you some questions, because you had some it's just phenomenal comments um, when we got on the phone before we started recording on your own experience with it. So like, it, 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 could, could you describe a, a little bit of that? What, um, what, 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 what was of note? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first thing that stood out to me, again, I come from a background of, you know, we went through COVID, right? And so we had kids in the public education system. And when they came home from school with their school issued smart device, I think it was grades three and younger were getting an iPad and grades or no, I'm sorry, kindergarten, first and second grade got iPads, third grade on up had Chromebooks. And watching the kids come home, I my day job, I work as an IT consultant and I do this this show largely because I want to help connect people with technical resources. So it's a huge passion of mine. And as you might imagine, all of my kids have ample access to technology because their dad owns an IT company. And so one of the things that I I pay really close attention to is how are my kids engaging in technology and what are they taking away? And is that a constructive, you know, engagement for them? And when I watched them come home with these devices from school, what I found was, All of these devices are locked down, right? So there's no administrative access whatsoever on the device. Okay, fine. I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. They have to maintain this this fleet of machines. But then it starts to get into, I start seeing these cases come up around the United States of various people in in school systems getting access to, to children's devices without their consent or without their knowledge and doing all sorts of inappropriate things. And it starts to make me a little bit more concerned. And then I start looking at what my kids are doing on these devices. And largely, they're spending time inside of things like G Suite. And they're learning how to do docs. And they're learning how to do spreadsheets. And they're learning how to use this online platform. And while I can respect and understand that these are valuable skills that are going to be necessary in the workplace, being able to do use a word process processor and use spreadsheets and do all of those things. I understand that. I, I work and support a, a number of companies that use G Suite, so I can see the correlation and the, and, and the benefit there. At the same time, I have to ask the question, are we really exploring technology or are we exploring a corporate cloud as a service platform? Because one builds a fundamental understanding of how to leverage technology for your own use. The other is learning what subscription to to subscribe to so that somebody else can handle your problems. And and, and and if this may be a bit oversimplistic, but it's that whole teach a man to fish, feed him for a day, or give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for the rest of their life. I want my kids to explore technology to the fullest. And so it didn't take very long for my kids to come home with these devices and they would, you know, do their school assignment or they would click on and, and, and look what was, you know, attend their conferences for that day. But then they would shut it off and they would go back to their own machines because they could install the things that they wanted to install and they could explore in the way that they wanted to explore. And so when you talk about, um, you know, allowing kids to be kind of that random abstract rather than providing them a linear path, you will learn this, then you will learn this, then you will learn this. It is very much not the way that kids explore naturally. And so 
when I installed Endless OS on, on my kid's PC and handed it out to him, and, I, and the, all three all three of my children um, have a fairly, uh, let's just say, extensive experience with a, a variety of operating systems. They have, they've, they've, they're all all Linux, but they've all tried different distros, and they all have their 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 individual preferences. So I installed Endless, and it's it, it was a bit different for all of them, and they immediately got into the games, Matt, and they immediately started engaging in the oh look what I can do, and look what I can learn, and look what I can read. And my daughter got into looking at animals, and and it was just this experience of exploration, and to be able to be disconnected from the internet was incredible you we go we'd spend a lot of time camping and we spend especially being in rural north dakota we don't always have access to the internet and so being able to provide that onto a machine and let them explore was just incredible my wife is a registered nurse and so i opened up the health app and said now i want you to look at this and i want you to give me your feedback as to what it would mean to you if you lived in a third world country and didn't understand how the spread of disease occurs or what kind of basic treatment or how you should respond to a particular kind of illness. Right. And it and there's all sorts of problems that I think we take for granted, maybe in this country that exist around the world. And so she was and her she was blown away. She starts looking at it and she goes, this is so powerful. This is life changing. You take this into a place that struggles to get they're walking five miles to a day to get water and don't really have access to electricity. You put it on a low power device that can be maybe powered by a solar panel or something like that. There's no prayer of getting Internet to some of these places, but there's absolutely a prayer of sending in, you know, a, 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 an SSD drive or a hard drive filled with a bunch of data. I remember interviewing somebody that was doing a, a missions trip over in a third world country and had brought a bunch of computers and outfitted a lab. And what happened, Matt, was when the teacher left for the day, uh, a couple of people from the village broke into the school and stole all of the technology. And so the interview was focused largely around this effort to go create computers that could fit into the teacher's backpack so that she could take them home at the end of the day. And so at the time they were using Raspberry Pis and such. But when I see things like Endless... And what you guys are doing with access to technology and access to the software, it 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 just all of this stuff starts to come together for me. And I start to see this is the this is the solution that we've been looking for. A lot of times a distro comes out and I have to ask, like, what is the target audience and, and why does this have to exist in the case of Endless? I was blown away. I mean, no exaggeration to say I was blown away that something of this caliber existed and has been around for for a good long while and not more people are talking about it because this should be people's first experience in, in my humble opinion first experience with technology it's a very very approachable on-ramp to start learning and understanding how the technical wheels work the way that you've designed the system in an immutable fashion means that the the option or the opportunities for paper cuts are greatly reduced and then you add all of that to the fact that you don't need an active Internet connection, which is kind of the antithesis of the way that America goes. We want to stream everything and we want to pay for a service for everything. We don't really want everything available to us. So having that available, I think, opens the doors to people that just wouldn't otherwise be able to access technology. And so as a person who is incredibly passionate about trying to get people connected to technology, I don't think there's a better option out there than Endless OS and what you guys are doing you know, in the broader scheme of things with the foundation. I'm so touched. I'm so honored. And I find it so cool that you can just boot up endless and then and get it, you know, and, and see it because that's that's what we that's what we're striving for. 
Matt Dalio, founder of Endless and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll absolutely continue to spread the word of Endless, and we'd love to get you back soon. Please, well, let me know if uh, ever I can uh, get back in touch, and we're happy to help. Music in our ears means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us at AskNoahShow.com. Follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow, podcast.AskNoahShow.com for the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.